You're listening to the Inbound Logistics Podcast with today's guest, Brian Baskin, Vice President of Global Logistics Solutions for Crane Worldwide. Joining me today is Brian Baskin, Vice President of Global Logistics Solutions for Crane Worldwide. Brian, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk with the Inbound Logistics Podcast. Thanks for having me. Brian, we usually like to start the show by introducing the guest to our audience. So if you could, could you give us a little bit of information about your background, where you grew up, uh, how you got into the industry, and uh, more importantly, what you're doing with Crane Worldwide now? Absolutely. Uh, I... uh Grew up in the Chicagoland area for the most part. After uh, going to high school in the western suburbs, uh, made my way down to St. Louis uh, to go to Washington University in St. Louis, where I was a, a technical theater and history major. Quickly realized that both of those degrees had a, a zero-sum game in terms of uh, <laughs> providing for the family. And uh, after uh, realizing the, the bar I was working in wasn't going to pay the bills, moved back to Chicago and sent resumes out and ended up uh, landing a job with uh, Schenker in Chicago doing customs entry work. So from there, with Schenker, did uh, customs entry work and then did trade fairs and exhibitions uh, and then was transferred down to the Austin facility and did a lot in Semicon, expedited moves, things like that. And then at that point in time, I met a, a gentleman by the name of Mr. John McGee uh, who hired me to go over to Eagle Global Logistics, uh, who was just starting an international department over there, and uh, went over to Eagle in, in uh, I guess, 1998. It's a long time ago. And from Eagle, ended up being in Austin there, working with lots of different accounts, and was moved to San Francisco and then L.A. and then back to Austin. All the different positions from regional ops to station leadership to uh, – so ultimately, I uh, was, was overseeing the, the Dell account from a global account management side. was lucky enough, uh, knowing John, when uh, the SIVA merger went down, was uh, able to jump and be a founder at Crane Worldwide. So it's been wow. a, a great ride starting Crane up and uh, have been with Crane since we opened. And speaking of Crane, you guys are making some large investments in real estate. What's the driving force behind that strategy? Well, I, I think the key for us was when you sit down and look at the U.S. market, and you look at what our strengths are in both the transportation network with our dedicated fleet, with where the trucking industry is going, uh, as well as our, our international footprint and our ability to move cargo in and out of the U.S. very quickly. I think we looked at most distribution networks, and again, being the position I'm in, I get to see lots of different verticals and lots mm-hmm. of different clients. So uh, they all have a lot of things in common, and you really can bring those down to about six to eight core markets in the U.S. So you know, we're looking at, at putting in large, big-box, multi-tenant facilities, I would say close, closer to the ocean, uh, intermodal sites, um, but obviously with a presence around the air markets. And in, in some markets, that may be two facilities. In other markets, it may be a single facility. Uh, but the idea ultimately is, is that having those big boxes, we can work with our clients and really put any type of, of distribution network in place, uh, whether it be a single facility on up to eight facilities, um, that all work together utilizing our, our WMS and, and lots of different tool sets that we have internally through the technology that we bring to the market. So um, that's really the strategy behind it is is trying to get to a point where we, we can create some leverage in those facilities, uh, really focused on the cost of DRE um, into the facility from a front-side distribution 
as well as the outbound cost and placement in terms of uh, uh, final mile delivery. So those would be mm -hmm. the, the key points there. Okay. You mentioned some key markets there. Uh, most notably, Crane's adding a large presence in Columbus, Ohio, and adding Savannah by the end of the year. What is the thought process behind that? Well, I mean, I think if you look at our industry in 3PL spaces, everyone has L.A. and Chicago and, mm -hmm. and, and, and Dallas and Atlanta. When you look at what's different out there, Columbus has obviously been a long-time ground distribution port. Um, there's a, a, a ex-military base Rickenbacker there that's now being repurposed into a, a commercial gateway for inbound cargo. Mm -hmm. And I think you look at Savannah uh, with for the widening of the Panama right. Canal two years ago, um, you're seeing a lot of client conversations talk about congestion, and you're hearing things like, you know, longer wait times at airports to get air freight. Uh, you're hearing, you know, longer wait times to get uh, containers out of the port. Um, we can talk specifically about some of those markets in, in a little bit, but, uh, you know, the, the main thing we see there in Columbus now having 15 international flight arrivals a week. And in Savannah, you're now having, uh, it's the largest uh, East Coast uh, port by our vessels calling it uh, in the first quarter of this year. Um, I think you're going to see a, a decentralization strategy come into play where people wanting to avoid the congestion, wanting to get back to faster cycle times uh, into these distribution markets, are going to look at these ports and leveraging the, the carriers that are there. You know, in Columbus, Ohio, been on the, on the tarmac there, a plane will pull up to the, the back of the, the facility, and it's unloaded in about 45 minutes, and the cargo's coming out the door in about 15 minutes after that. Um, you get a Savannah, and you're sitting there in the port terminal, and you're watching 11,000 trucks go through the gate, and it looks like it's, uh, you know, another day in Mayberry with terms of the traffic. So, um you look at those kind of investments that have gone into these these facilities for those looking for a, a, a less congested option in the marketplace uh, with similar transit times to the others. Um, it's a great option. Yeah. So, I guess that's what's warranting Crane building five hundred thousand square feet of space there in Savannah. It is. We were very fortunate. We worked in conjunction with the Georgia Port Authority. Uh, and won a land auction down there for some land very close, about four miles from the port in terms of gate eight. But I think when you look at just the ocean market in general, um, you have kind of a, a strategy today uh, where a lot of folks just, just bring cargo from Asia into the West Coast, and then they, they transload it and, and intermodal cargo across. And if you look at the history of the industry, probably – Probably as short as 10 years ago, I mean, steamship lines were still doing door deliveries of containers. And you see that in nowadays they they charge an extreme premium to do that service still, and really they don't want to be in that business at all. Um, I think the next five years you're going to see the ocean companies probably try and exit the intermodal market or at least do it a different way. Uh, there's a lot of cost and equipment imbalances that, that, that impacts their, their performance. Um, and then you have, you know, what their core competency is getting a vessel from, from port to port. Uh, once it hits ports, uh, you have different challenges that arise uh, coming up. So uh, things like space, if you look at L.A. Long Beach, you have 23 different terminals. Or sorry, excuse me, uh, 13 different terminals over two different ports there. Um, they don't work very well together per se. There's a lot of competition for resources down there. 
Um, and let's face it, I mean, when you build a, a port three miles from Donald Trump's golf course, I mean, the land values down there, um, you have a lot of not-in-my-backyard folks that, that don't want the, the port there. So um, when you look at the uh, kind of the future of the West Coast, I think we've seen increasing delays in peak season year on year, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So with the opening of the Panama Canal, uh, widening of it, I think we're seeing that the vessel vessel operators going to larger ships uh, with larger containers uh, coming off and larger burst volumes hitting the ports. So, you know, the old adage of, of things getting buried in the L.A. port and not being able to get to your mm-hmm. container uh, seems to be a more and more frequent, frequently heard statement. Um, so, you know, as importers look at all these challenges, you start looking at, okay, what are my options? Yeah, I have a longer water time into Savannah, but if I can get my hands on that container and I can transload it and direct ship it into a DC, um, even doing sorts or adding value-added services there, um, we felt Savannah being geographically the southernmost point uh, outside of Florida, um, it's a, a logical first stop rotation, which we're seeing in the vessel calls that are hitting Savannah. When you look at their performance as a port and you look at how they're structured, uh, you know, public entity, but, but funding itself and the investments they're making in both infrastructure cranes as well as rail projects and, and, and other things that are more regionally focused, you know, they have a very strong five to ten year plan that they've been working. So, uh, we feel that that they're ahead of the game in terms of what's coming in. So, uh, when you look at 500,000 square feet of space, the, the, just brought 2.4 million square feet on. It's already leased. It seems like a really good real estate play, number one. But number two, from a logistics 3PL market, we think you're going to see a lot of DCs in Atlanta gravitate down towards the Savannah market here in the next five years. So you sound a little uh, anti-West Coast there. What do you have against Long Beach and LA? And uh, is that a general trend you're noticing, or is that just something that Crane is focusing on? You know, I, I I would tell you I'm not anti-West Coast. I think there's a reality in the industry right now. And, and, you know, when you look at the driver shortage, you look at drayage in the West Coast, you look at the abuse of drivers out there, um, you look at just kind of the whole industry as a whole, you can only get so much volume through a place. And, you know, it is by nature the cheapest um, ocean point of distribution in terms of coming over from Asia. It's the shortest route. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of logic that goes into that. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think at some point in time, you know, if you just keep trying to force more and more through something, there's a point where it's going to implode on itself. Right. And I think there's just a lot of things working against it. So um, my my point of view isn't anti-West Coast. I mean, they're doing about 13 million TEUs each in each of the ports. So when you look at that as comparative to a Savannah, who I think just broke 4 million this year, um, this past year, you know, their scale is not even close. Mm-hmm. Um, we need, as, a, as an America, America, we need a strong West Coast port. I think the problem is if everyone keeps overusing it and oversubscribing it, you're just continuing to feed an issue with drivers. Um, I think last I heard from internal numbers, you know, for every every 26 loads, there's one driver available coming off the West Coast. Um, it's not uncommon to see rates through the roof out there at different times of year coming east. So, you know, for those who don't have the the urgency in their supply chain, I think there's a very compelling case to shed volume to the East Coast and help, you know, number one, help drivers get back west by, by moving stuff from east to west, um, as well as, you know, looking at, at taking some of that volume off of the West Coast. And I think you can build a very stable and and, uh, and time-sensitive supply chain over over the, the – uh, 
Savannah Port, um, especially uh, come 2020 when the rail project's complete. I think most people in the industry would give Savannah a knock on its rail service today uh, just because of, of how the trains move. But again, once uh, once that rail project where they can build the stack trains is complete, I think you're going to see a, 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 the ability for larger trains and, and more economical stack trains into the Chicago's and Columbus's of the world uh, versus today having to cheat up the East Coast. All right. So where then do you see Crane positioning itself in the next five years, let's say? And uh, with that, what kind of technologies do you think will be some of the key drivers for that positioning? Yeah, I think from a, a crane positioning itself, I think I think we want to develop uh, high-value, high-touch solutions for our clients. Um, I would tell you we cheat more to the custom side of distribution. So when you look at our, our solutions, we can come in and, and kind of mix a blend of, of you know, systems integration, uh, kind of forecasting and visibility tools, and then uh, obviously um, – just kind of knowing where your stuff is and being able to integrate uh, storage with transportation. Um, I think you're going to see us continue to develop those tool sets. Uh, I think our WMS will continue to become more robust um, as we go forward. I mean, using different types of technologies that are appropriate to the clients we're using, whether it be pick to light or, or using uh, automated uh, conveyor systems, things like that, uh, where it makes sense. Um, I do think you can over-automate things as well. So mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty balanced when we look at opportunities to make sure we're not over-engineering them. Um, but I would say I, I, I do think the technology, and especially integration technology, I think the industry as a whole is really suffering from data, uh, bad data. Um, and there's a lot of systems out there that can do some really cool things, but you fundamentally have to have good data going into it. And unfortunately, as an industry, we aren't very good at that. So... Uh, <laughs> Most of the stuff you see, most of the systems out there break down with the uh, with the bad data. So um, I, I really hope, uh, as an industry, we we can put some focus on data discipline uh, that would help all of us remove some inefficiencies from what we do every day. But uh, I think the company that can figure that out is going to be a frontier leader in in the three PL space. Okay, interesting points. Now let's get back to the warehousing. Everyone's got a warehouse. What makes Crane's offerings so different? Well, I, I mean, like you said, I mean, you walk through a warehouse, there's only so much you can do with concrete to make it look different, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, different color racks, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it all comes down. This industry always has been about the people. Um, and I, I, I believe our people differentiate Crane in what we do. It always has, uh, whether it be transportation, uh, fleet, or, or warehousing. Um, I'm sure everyone can jump on and say the same thing and, and believes just as strongly as their people. But I, I think you have a rare combination here where you have a, a well-funded organization uh, with a lot of talent in a lot of different areas that can be brought to bear on a lot of different problem sets. So you're not just talking to a warehouse person. You're talking to someone who who can run you know, global transportation and understands the challenges coming out of Shanghai into that warehouse or you know, the domestic transportation challenges with the driver shortages, given that we operate a, a domestic fleet. I mean, everyone has those type of folks, but I think we do a really good job of bringing them together on a solution and, and really delivering value to our client above and beyond just the, the dollars and cents. I, th- I think we we really try and innovate and, and continuously innovate with our client. And I think that's really what would separate us from everyone else. 
Great. So where can my audience go to find out more information about Crane's offerings? Uh, com would be a good start. Uh, and on there, you'll find links to all the different uh, topics uh, that we're talking about. We're publishing, so we're updating that all the time uh, with new information. Um, I would tell you to check out our, our new CView tool in terms of the visibility. Um, and again, um, if there's ever any questions, there's some contacts on there for folks to get a hold of us, and we'd be happy to engage and come look at any problem statement your organization has. Brian Baskin, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time today. Inbound Logistics Magazine is the information leader in supply chain and logistics management. Start your free print and digital subscription today by visiting bit.ly slash get il. That's bit dot l y slash get underscore il and stay ahead of the 3pl game the inbound logistics podcast is a production of inbound logistics magazine for the most in-depth information around logistics, transportation, and supply chain practices, get your free print and digital subscription at inboundlogistics.com slash subscribe. Connect with us via LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for the most current developments in the industry. If you'd like to leave us some feedback or have a topic you'd like to see covered in a future episode, call our dialogue line at 888-878-3247 or leave us an email at podcast at inboundlogistics.com. I'm your host, Jeff Vita. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on the Inbound Logistics Podcast.